We're going to continue in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. About 300 years ago, there was an old Scottish pastor. Uh, he was nearing death. Um, his name was Robert Bruce. He knew that the time would be soon. He asked his daughter, who was there, to help take care of him if she would make him an egg for breakfast. He enjoyed the egg so much that he thought he might have another. And then he, he told his daughter, no, actually, the Lord is going to take me home soon. Do not fret. I have breakfasted with you this morning, but I will sup with the Lord Jesus tonight. What hope and what courage this man had that everything about Jesus and everything written in his word was true regarding our deaths and our life in the world to come. 2 Corinthians 5 gives us this comfort. It's all over the scriptures, of course. We all know that we will someday die, but Christians should have no fear of death. Indeed, like Robert Bruce, we welcome it when it comes because we'll be with the Lord forever. Would you please stand for the reading of God's holy word? This is 2 Corinthians 5. I'll be reading 5 through 10, starting in verse 5. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we will make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Amen. Please be seated. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you as men and women, boys and girls, who are helpless apart from your Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to strike a straight blow with this crooked stick. We need your, your word to penetrate between joints and marrow and bones and all the way to our souls that we might be changed and encouraged and chastened admonished and blessed. Holy Spirit, please do your work among us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. As we await for the coming of the Lord, I've thought often that we should really think more and more and more about the hope we have in heaven. Apostle Paul certainly, certainly thought about it. The prophets certainly thought about it. We read in Hebrews 11 that Abraham thought about it, that Moses thought about it. We also should consider our attitudes as we await for the Lord to, to return, to come and get us. I don't think it should make us anxious, but we should just have a firm confidence that he is coming. And this gives us courage, as Paul is saying. When you understand that, you have good courage. I remember when my children were very little, 
I would go on long deployments, be gone for months and months. And in some ways, they handled these long deployments better than my wife and I did. Mary Kay would tell them, Daddy's going to be gone for a long time. And you know what they would ask? Well, is he coming home? Is Daddy coming home? Well, yes, he's coming home. It's, it's going to be three months. But he's coming home. Yes, Daddy's coming home. Okay. As long as they knew that I was coming home, they faced the trial with courage. Because for a child, three months is just like tomorrow. They don't understand time the way we do. So they faced it with great courage. They knew that Daddy was going to come home someday. And that was just as good as saying he's coming home tomorrow. Similarly, as we walk as exiles on this earth, we should also not fret about the day that he comes, but just be very confident that he is coming. Either we will die and go meet him, or he will come back and take us back with him. Either way, he is coming. We're confident that everything he said is true. And when this happens, when we go to be with him, it's going to be the most glorious thing It's going to be the most wonderful event. It's going to be the most fulfilling thing that could possibly ever happen. Brindley made me think about this as she's so excited about her birthday. She's so longing for this birthday party. She knows that it's going to be so so wonderful and so happy. But what happens after every birthday party? The kids eat the cake. They get the presents. And at the end of it, it's empty. I mean, certainly they're happy for a while, but it's the same after Christmas morning for a child. It takes about two hours and you're kind of like, that was it. Everything in life is like that, brother and sister. Nothing will fulfill. Our hearts are meant to long for heaven, the one thing that will fulfill. Being with Christ forever. So the title of the sermon is The Perfection of Heaven. We're going to look at the the life of faith in light of the perfections of heaven. Why heaven is even better. He says, I long to be with the Lord and away from the body. Why? Why is heaven better? And we'll also see that there is exact judgment for the impenitent and exact reward for the faithful. So look at verse 6 with me, the life of faith. He says, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. So although we don't have this eternal inheritance yet, we are of good courage. He says it twice. He repeats it. We are always of good courage. Now remember, courage does not mean you don't have fears. You don't have doubts. Courage is striving forward in confidence in spite of your fears and doubts. That's courage. Paul's saying he knows that his life is like a tent. Remember, he he described this in the previous verses. His whole life, his body is like a tent. And what happens with tents when the wind starts to blow? You've probably seen pictures or or videos of people who are camping on a mountain and they haven't anchored their tent down and the wind comes up and it just blows the tent away. Our life is like that. It's temporary. Someday it will be blown away. But Paul says... We are always of good courage. He says, we have a house in heaven. Present tense. 
We have right now a building from God that's permanent and cannot be blown away. He's referring to the time after we die when we go to be with the Lord. It is there waiting. We will be with Him. It's absolutely certain. The heavenly dwelling, the heavenly place with God, the heavenly time with God is certain and it's eternal. Nothing can change it. And what is mortal about our flesh is going to be someday swallowed up in life, Paul says. It's going to swallow up everything about you. This eternal life, this new reality of Jesus forever and ever in paradise. And if you understand this reality, it gives you courage. It gives you great courage. You are always of good courage when you remember what God has prepared for those who love Him. It also gives you perspective when you consider Christians who do courageous things through history, Christians who face martyrdom with great courage. You see people in the Bible who do amazing things, courageous things. Why? What makes them so courageous? Well, certainly they understand that God is eternal and God has them in His hands and He will bring them to Himself if they were ever to die. God is what gives them courage. Galatians 5, Paul says, it's through the Spirit by faith that we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. He gives us the faith to believe that what His Word says is true. And that gives us courage. Certainly, we don't see heaven with our eyes, like I'm looking at you and you're looking at me. We see each other with our eyes. We know that this is a physical reality. Heaven is going to be a physical reality, and I'm talking the new heavens and the new earth, but the place where Jesus is at the side of the Father right now is a place. It's a reality. We can't see it, though. And yet Paul still says to be here in the physical body is to be away from the Lord. So forever truly to be at home with the Lord, we must depart this physical body or stay in our body and have it turned to a glorified body when Christ returns. So it sounds fantastic to the world. To the unsaved world, it sounds ridiculous and foolish. And yet we believe it with all of our hearts. Verse 5, Paul tells us why we believe it. Because He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. God is preparing us. He's not just preparing heaven. He's preparing us to walk through this earth in courage, yes, but to die and to go be with Him. He's preparing us for this event. He's preparing you for the life you now live. The Holy Spirit is with you. He's your comforter. And everything He calls you to do on this earth, including death, He's preparing you for that as well. When you discard your tent, the Holy Spirit will have you ready. He'll give you the grace you need exactly when you need it. You say, well, I don't know if I'm ready to die right now. I'm kind of afraid of that. When you are, your time to die comes, He will give you the grace you need. And you'll be ready because the Spirit lives in you. You aren't left without help. You have the Word of God as your guide. As you walk this earth and all the truth herein, 
the Holy Spirit puts on your heart and says, this is true. This is true. This is why Paul says twice, we have courage. When he talks of death, he says, we have courage. Christ said he's going to prepare a place for his people. This is true. But we believe it by faith. This is verse 7. We walk by faith and not by sight. You ask, how can you actually believe this? Well, God has given me faith that everything in His Word is true. And we walk by faith. Eternal things are only grasped by faith. The spiritual truths of the Scriptures are only grasped and held onto by faith. Well, how do I get faith? The Holy Spirit gives you faith. But it's not a blind faith either. It's not like... It defies everything that logic would tell me is right. I'm just going to believe it's true. No. Our faith is a real living faith. It's a faith that's attested to by all of God's creation and His Word. In Psalm 19, David says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims His handiwork. Day to day they pour out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. Everyone can look at creation and know that God exists. They see the glory of God in creation. All of us, even those who are going to perish, should be able to know that there is a God in heaven by looking at creation. Our faith is not a blind faith. We, who are God's redeemed, we certainly know it. We look at the mountains. We look at the ocean. We look at... Our pets, we look at insects, we look at our own bodies. We know in creation that God is behind it all. His fingerprints are on everything He's made. You can't look at the night sky and not know that there is a one, God in heaven, who has named each and every of the trillions and trillions of stars. The whole universe is held together by the word of His power. But more than creation, we have His word His revealed word for us. This makes our faith more than just a blind faith. We walk by faith, but it's faith that actually is based on truth. It's faith with a promise. We have faith in in the truth of the word of God. We have truth about our creator and creation. We have fellowship right here with each other. And when we're together and the Holy Spirit is among us as He is, our hearts are knit together in a wonderful and special way that we just cannot grasp, but we know it's real. We know that there are many in this room who will be walking with us forever in eternity. We know that it's true and we can't explain it. It's not a blind faith at all. The Holy Spirit makes it real. We have the sacraments, visible representations of the gospel that increase our faith and encourage us. The preaching of the word as Christ speaks to our souls. We have the Holy Spirit living in us, most importantly. So yes, we don't see Jesus in heaven clearly. We look through a glass dimly. But He's given us much to encourage our faith and to remind us that heaven is coming. It's real. And when we die, we don't need to be afraid. In verse 8, he says, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Paul says, I would rather be away, away from the body. I would rather be at home with the Lord. 
Heaven is better. That's point number two. Heaven is better than earth. Heaven is better than this life. Being with the Lord is better than anything we could imagine. That's why Paul says, I would rather be at home with the Lord. I would rather be in heaven. There are many, so many reasons why this is true. Let me just highlight a few of them. First of all, heaven is better because God's original intent to dwell with man is realized. If you go back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and 3, God created man. And where did He put him? In a beautiful garden. And the Bible says that God planted that garden in Eden. You may not have read that before. Notice that. God planted the garden. He prepared this wonderful place for Adam and Eve. He brought sin. Adam and Eve brought sin and death into this wonderful place where there was once fellowship, perfect fellowship between God who walked in the garden with man. Adam and Eve, before sin, being perfect and righteous and holy, could live with God, could walk with God in fellowship. But then sin broke all that in half. When Adam and Eve sinned, they brought a curse onto all of creation. They brought death and sin into the world. And this sin separated them from the Holy One. But from the very beginning, God promised that He would set all things right again. He would make a way for communion, perfect communion, once again. He would send a Redeemer. He would not leave mankind in their misery. He promised our father Abraham that there would be many descendants, and what? He would be their God, and they would be His people. That's the promise. That's, that's the promise from the beginning to the end of Scripture. That God would be the God of His people and, and they would be His people. He would be their God. To the prophets, He declared over and over again that someday He would come and dwell again with His people in perfect harmony, in perfect unity. The problem was He's holy. And we are sinful and wicked. That's, that's something that cannot be... You cannot solve this from our perspective at all. But God sent His own Son, the God-man, 100% God, 100% man, to be that perfect human being and then that perfect sacrifice to bring again man and God into perfect harmony and fellowship. Of course, on this earth... It is only imperfectly seen in the church and in God's people. But when we are in heaven, once again, perfect harmony, perfect unity between God and man, walking together forever in perfect fellowship. He not only justifies us on earth when we're saved and sanctifies us throughout our lives, but when we die, He glorifies us to be with Him forever. This was His intent. In Revelation 21, John heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. 
all of God's promises and, and saving grace and all of his work on the earth has one purpose, that through Christ he would gather to himself his own people and that someday he would dwell with them forever and ever. And he would be their God and they would be his people to his glory. Dwelling in their midst in perfect communion. And by his own power and for his own glory, he did it through Christ. And when we die or when he returns again, this will all be finally done. The intent of God to have communion with his people, to walk with his people. So this is one reason why being in heaven is better. This was the original intent of man in the first place, was to walk in communion with the holy God. Not that he needed us, but we need him. Why else is heaven better? The new heavens and the new earth are a wonderful place. Being with God forever is a wonderful thing. The Garden of Eden, if you remember, it was gorgeous. It was, I mean, real estate around here is getting expensive. Why? Because it's, it's desired. It's pretty. There's a good view. Uh, it's fertile land. It can support cattle. It can grow crops. It's really nice land. The price is skyrocketing. The Garden of Eden, this was prime real estate. You could get nothing like it. God planted the garden. He planted every tree that is pleasant to the sight. In other words, it was beautiful. It was gorgeous. He ensured that the fruit of the trees was good for food. It was delicious. So not only the sight, but the, the taste was good. He made a river flow to the garden. It was lush. The surrounding area was filled with gold and precious stones. It was, it was just wonderful. And this was the place where God would dwell with man. It was full of glory. It was full of the perfections of God and the beauty of His own handiwork. This was the home of God with man. But after man sinned, Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. And God in His covenant of grace repaired this breach so that we could come into communion with God once again. And this is ultimately fulfilled in heaven. That will be the, the place of perfect beauty and glory. In heaven, every one of our senses will feel God's glory and the wonder and the delight of being with God in the place He's prepared to dwell with man. Revelation 21 and 22 talk all about the river of life. It's the same imagery we see in the Garden of Eden. A river producing great life and abundance everywhere. The walls are tall. They're filled with jewels. It's a safe place. It's secure. This will be a beautiful and wonderful inheritance. But it's also better because it will be a wonderful thing to be there. Not just to see it. Not just to touch it. Not just to, to, to know it. But it will be wonderful to be there because Jesus will be there. There's also going to be no danger. 
No heartache, no sin, no brokenness, no pain. No broken bodies, no disease, no tears. Just perfect love. All of us dwelling together with Christ in perfect harmony and love. With each other and with God. Our present world, we live under a curse. But there, there's nothing that's cursed. There's going to be perfect safety. The gates are secure. The walls impenetrable. Nothing can harm the people of God. There'll be no more danger. There will be no more war. No more conflict. Rather, every tribe and people and tongue will proclaim the glory of God and praise Him. Our fellowship is compared to a marriage feast held in honor of the Lamb of God where we will sup with Him and He with us forever. Jonathan Edwards wrote a wonderful book. I recommend it to you called Heaven is a World of Love. It's based on 1 Corinthians 13 where he writes, where Paul writes, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part on this earth. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So love never ends. And when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. What's left? Jonathan Edwards says, love is left. This is why heaven is a world of love. We taste Christ's heavenly love now in the the Spirit, but we will be fully immersed in that love. We will be consumed by that love. It will envelop us. He writes, It is the happiness of love and the beginning of a life of such holy love, of such love, holy and humble and divine and heavenly love. Love to God. Love to Christ, love to the saints for God and for Christ's sake, to the enjoyment of the fruits of God's love in holy communion with God, Christ, and holy persons. This is what we now relish. And such is their renewed nature that such happiness they cannot imagine. The world does not afford anything like it. Every sense and every emotion of our glorified bodies and eternal souls will be overwhelmed by our glorious inheritance in every way. If you've read C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle, the last of the Chronicle of Narnia series, he tries to explain what this is like. You should go read that again as well. But the Scriptures tell us enough. To be with the Lord is far better. It's far better. It's going to be glorious and wonderful. We should all yearn for that day. Thirdly, in the last point, Paul shows us that in heaven, all that we do on earth will be perfectly rewarded, and those who reject God will be perfectly punished. There is an exact judgment and an exact reward based on the justice of God says in verses 9 and 10, Whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Whether we are at home in our bodies or away with Christ, 
We make it our aim to please him. For the Christian, no matter where we are, the entire reason for our existence is to do what? To glorify God. We'll do this perfectly in heaven. But here on earth, we still strive to do that. To please him in every thought word indeed, we desire to please our father in heaven as a child. Desires to please his father on earth. A beloved father whom he wants the, the favor of and he strives to please him. So why do we make it our aim to please him? He tells us in verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And this is affirmed through the, all of the scriptures that every human being will be judged by Christ. Every human. From Adam to the end, every human will face the judgment seat of Christ. The rebellious will be judged for their rejection of God. And because of God's perfect justice, we know that some will suffer more in hell than others. The, the judgment will be different for different people. There's no peanut butter spreading of wrath and hell. It's going to be meted out perfectly according to God's perfect justice. Because He's perfectly just. He's not going to give any one person more judgment, more wrath, than He has earned on the earth. His justice is perfect. And His judgment is perfect. Similarly, the redeemed will be judged for their obedience to God. Each person who has ever been created, as Paul says, will receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. So for the saints, we know that this is not talking about are getting to that place. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's it. But after that, our, our works still matter. And God in His perfect justice is going to reward some. And He's going to reward some more. We desire to please God because He's chosen us and He's kept us and He's blessed us. But that doesn't mean that God is still not going to reward whomever He will in heaven. And it's all wrapped up in His perfect justice. His perfect righteousness. He's a solid judge. And up until the 20th century, if you asked saints, are there going to be rewards in heaven? Until about 100 years ago, everyone would say, of course. The Bible teaches it. But now it seems that it's, it's, it's somehow impertinent to suggest that God's going to reward some people more than others. This language is shocking to us that we might have to face the judgment of Christ and be rewarded for what we've done in the body, whether good or evil. But let me just assure you it's perfectly biblical to think that God will reward those who please Him with varying levels of honor or responsibility or reward in heaven. It's His business, it's not ours, but it's what the Bible teaches. I'm going to talk about it for just a moment. Nobody said more about heavenly rewards than Jesus Himself. He knows. Read Matthew 25. And I don't believe it's possible to think wrongly about a heavenly reward for a true Christian for very long at all. Because if your motivation is to get some reward, then obviously the Holy Spirit will correct that thought. We live for God because we love God. And His reward is His own business. 
So why do we have some hesitation about this doctrine? I think there's a couple reasons. The ones that I could, could discern was we think maybe it does God some injustice. That he would, he's not right to reward some better than others. To give some more honor than others. Or maybe it just shames us. The thought shames us because we know that in Christ we're not living fully for God. And we don't like the thought that we might not be rewarded as well as someone else. Jonathan Edwards, again, is very helpful here. He talks about the great happiness that some will have and the little bit lesser happiness that others will have in heaven. Although we will all be perfectly happy because it's a place of love. There may be varying rewards in heaven for what was done on earth, but there's absolutely no jealousy. There's no resentment. There's no bickering. There's there's nothing that would cause you to covet someone else's reward. It's all wrapped up in the perfect love we have in Christ and for each other because of Christ. So there's nothing but joy and happiness for each other and for, for our own presence there with God. Obviously, as we've said, regarding salvation, there's absolutely no difference. Everyone in heaven is only there because of the cross. That's it. We're all there for one reason. God has given us faith to believe in Jesus Christ and repent in His name, believing that we have eternal life in Christ. We're receiving what was purchased for us. Nobody's any different from anyone else in heaven and that regard but regarding a heavenly reward there's a great difference the master slaves will receive what is due them based on their service on earth jesus taught this in matthew 25 and paul teaches us the same the judgment seat of christ the wicked will face judgment based on their condemnation based on their evil works on the earth but the righteous are going to receive a judgment of obedience how well they obeyed How well they pursued God and mercy and kindness. How well they suffered for His name. The martyrs who died for the the name of Jesus Christ and His gospel. They will be honored in heaven. They'll be rewarded for their sacrifice. Why? Because it's the perfect exactitude of God's righteousness. He's perfectly just. He's perfectly righteous. And this drives perfect reward for service. Here's an illustration I think is helpful. Look at soldiers in the army that get drafted. For World War II, there were a number of men all over the country who were drafted. They're all drafted. They're all going off to war. They all get the same pay. And yet, there are varying levels of of competency, of courage. So they go to the war. Some are more courageous than others. Some fight harder than others. Some have better ability than others. Some use their strength better than others. So they all get the same pay. Nothing has changed. They're not doing what they do because they're going to get more money. It's the same pay. But when they get home, those who have been the most courageous, the most brave, they get medals, they get parades, They're lifted up in front of all of us. And does anyone ever despise a man 
who is wearing the Medal of Honor and driving down the middle of the road with ticker tape parade. No, we glory in that man. We're proud of him. We love the courage that he showed. We rejoice in his reward. This is what heaven will be like. You're going to see people who have sacrificed much on the earth for Jesus and his kingdom, and you're going to glory in that man or that woman. And all the the work that you've done on earth will not be forgotten. This is all through the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 8, Each will receive his reward according to his labor. Hebrews 11, Moses regarded the disgrace for the sake of the gospel as greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Why? He was looking ahead to his reward. Jesus said that those who are persecuted should rejoice and leap for joy. Why? Because your reward is great in heaven. Not your reward is heaven, because your reward is great in heaven. And in Matthew 25, Jesus said to the faithful slaves, Well done, good and faithful slave. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. The idea of reward is a great comfort to us. God is perfectly just. It helps motivate our obedience. We all desire a better country. So let me just conclude by saying our obedience matters. For those who do not follow Jesus right now, you should know that you're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You need to repent. You need to repent and come to Him. Be reconciled to God. Come to Jesus. But for we who are saved, when we think about our future with God, we should take great courage that He has prepared a place for us. Remember, Paul was beaten and battered down by these churches, and he took comfort in knowing and great courage in the knowledge that God had prepared a place for him. After they killed him, he would rise up again with Jesus forever. This is our encouragement as well. So pursue Jesus with all of your strength. May the Holy Spirit enable you to see Christ more clearly, and may it give you courage to live for Him. Let us pray. Our Father and God, we thank You so much that Your Word is true. We thank You that not only have You given us Your Holy Spirit to live with us and in us as we walk this earth, but You've given us courage. Courage not only to walk with You, but to die and to go be with You. And we also know that nothing we do on this earth is overlooked. Lord, we who are or in your family, are going to be rewarded for our hard work. Lord, may we glorify you and enjoy you all the days of our lives. May we live for you in in gratitude of your love for us. And may you strengthen our hands for your service. In Jesus' name, amen.